0: Alright, well, you can now open up your Bibles for the second-to-last time to Ephesians, where we will be starting our time in chapter 6 this week. We will finish chapter 6 next week, of course. So today we will be looking at verses 1 through 9, and this can be found on page 1162 of your Pew Bibles. And as we're now... Edging nearer to the finish line of our time here in ephesians it 's my hope that we as a church of better have come to better understand this book and all of the, the beautiful truths contained in it and the profound mysteries that it seeks to reveal to us about who we are as the church and what God has done in placing us together and giving us a new identity in Christ, a new being of being in him, united to him, but also giving us a mission in Christ, a calling and a purpose in God's redemptive plans for the world. And so, through it all, as we've seen, um, we've seen that the church is the beautiful masterpiece of God, the, the poema of God, the making of God, the art piece of God. And so, we are the glorious unity of all those who are in Christ, of both Jew and Gentile, as we've seen. And so, all peoples of all tribes and tongues have now come and been called to be a part of this body. Christ, to now be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, to be the temple of the living. God, the God who is making all things new through the spread of his kingdom. And so Ephesians gives us what is really an enormous vision of reality, a a cosmic vision of cosmic scope for what the church is and what our place is in God's redemptive story of our world. It's almost too difficult to express in words, but it's important for us to keep in mind once again as we approach uh, these instructions of the Apostle Paul, particularly about about how life is to be managed in the ancient Christian household and what we might learn for life's management in our household as well. And so from the start of chapter 4 into the first uh, half or so of chapter 5, Paul began by casting a vision of what we might call a general ethical vision of how life ought to look for every Christian. And then he transitions from the this sort of general vision into now giving specific instructions for members of the household. So he narrows his focus down then to, as we saw last week, husbands and wives. And as we'll see this morning, now to children and parents and slaves and masters. And so he has brought his focus now into how these different members of the ancient household ought to live together. And so in chapter 5, verses 21 through, uh, through chapter 6 through 9, many scholars um, have said that this passage, that these, these verses here from the end of 5 into the beginning of chapter 6, are what we can call household codes. And I largely agree with this. Paul is Very clearly, I think, remixing these household codes, giving a Christian spin on them, adjusting them according to the will of God. And it seems to me that this is likely the case because I think what he's trying to do is contrast life in this world with life in the kingdom of God. So he's contrasting. We've seen that over the last several weeks. And so last week I brought up those two funny words you may remember, iconoclasm and indigenization. Uh, Paul was smashing some parts of uh, customary traditions of the ancient household, and he was indigenizing or affirming and establishing other practices in the household. And that is what we will see again this morning as we turn to our passage at the start of chapter 6. And so with all of that in mind, let's pray for the Lord to bless our reading. Our God, as we come to your word to listen once again to these marvelous things that you have given to us, Lord, we know that here you express not only your will for us, but you express your love for us. You express yourself to us, that we may know you and live in fellowship with you and express this fellowship in the way that we order our lives in this world, so that we may glorify you before all nations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, hear now the reading of God's word from Ephesians 6 1 through 9. Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. As you would as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with the good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Of all the tricky subjects that the Bible gives us to think about, there is perhaps none trickier than the subject of authority. It's a word that for many of us strikes fear into our hearts, And so we struggle to understand it. We struggle to understand how the Lord could call us to live. Under authority, and perhaps our initial thoughts as we hear this word are thoughts of fear or anxiety. Maybe you've had enough bad experiences, or had enough hard things happen to you from authority by being maybe abused, or someone misusing their authority. So that your gut reaction in hearing this word is first to think that all authority must be questioned. It's not something that can be trusted. So perhaps for some of you who feel this way, there's also a level of anger. Because you've seen authority so badly misused in your own experience, you feel a reactionary sense of spite against it. And maybe because of your anger, you feel a sense of despair, knowing that or thinking to yourself that authority can't ever properly be really used well. It's impossible, you may think. In many ways, I think it's safe to say that there is a deep thread of anti-authoritarianism in our culture today. Largely, I think, because of these types of sentiments and the failures of authority as we've seen them in our world. We see this not only in pop culture and youth culture, this sort of anti-establishment or anti-authority view, but we see it also uh, in the way that we think of... uh, What's going on in the world? The way we think of politics and politicians and so on and so forth. We see this sort of stuff in our national conversations, sort of a brazen rebellion against those who are in power. Just within the past few years, just to cite one example, and I'm not either commenting on the goodness or the badness of it, uh, but we've seen, for example, the movement. Summarized in the three words defund the police it's it's a movement fueled in our culture that's that's by the sort of loss of trust that we have now in our police forces for good or for ill Uh, there is especially a sense that there is a lot of abusive police towards those of non-white origins or ethnicities so especially the black people of our nation and so there is a sense of loss of authority, loss of trust in our authority. And I can remember this back in my days at Fresno State as a college student taking a class called Diversity in the U.S. 180. Uh, it was a very memorable class. Not all of my classes do I remember much from, but it was a memorable class uh, because I learned a lot of things that alarmed me and shocked me and challenged the way that I thought about the world. And I'm very thankful for this class, though I largely disagreed with some of the things that my professor taught us. And I can remember one of the things that she she mentioned to us, and structured and instructed us on one morning was to never allow a doctor uh, to request you to call them doctor. So she said that when you go to the doctor's office for a visit, do not call them doctor. And actually, tell them, I'm not going to call you doctor. I'm going to call you by your first name. And she said, if they insist that you call them doctor, that's when you leave. That's when you walk out. And the reason for her advice was clear and not entirely unfounded. Sometimes doctors get things wrong, sometimes doctors and other authorities misuse and abuse their authority. We know this. And so it's not wrong to take your own health into your own hands, to maybe question a little bit of what your doctor said. Uh, I've heard stories uh, uh, plenty of times where doctors have gotten diagnoses wrong and it took the patient's own uh, uh, insistence and, and, and their own willpower to push through and to find the help that they really needed. So I understand the sentiment. And I definitely get where my professor was coming from, but I bring all of this up just to illustrate that authority in our culture is very often pushed against. It's not something that many people think very highly of. It's even a, to- or even a thing that many people don't really have much place for in their world view. But on the other hand, of course, there are many in our culture today who not only appreciate the idea of authority, uh, but who love it. And maybe even you could say idolize it, who take it to the far opposite extreme, who want to see authority maximized and strengthened at all costs. So over the past few years, there's been a very interesting increase in people clamoring for authority. Toughness in our leaders, for strong leaders who may not be pretty, they say, in the way that they work things out and manage uh, politics, but at least they get the job done at any cost. That, that often is the way that people think of authority as well. And I think in many ways, the overall movement of our culture is towards the anti-authoritarian position. But because of this, I think that there has been a serious reaction of people towards the opposite end of the extreme who have pushed for very aggressive forms of authority. In effect, they've they've gone that opposite way. They've pushed towards the opposite end of the spectrum. And perhaps, ironically, it's people's Latent anti-authoritarianism that gets them to move towards authority because our culture seems to be moving towards anti-authoritarianism so strongly. People with their anti-authoritarian rebellious attitudes now are almost pushing in the opposite direction and pushing for uh, extreme kinds of authority. And so in order to right the wrongs, they think of our culture's anti-authoritarian, rebellious spirit. They are now pushing towards these aggressive forms. And I, I once witnessed this in the path of a, of a friend I had in college who sort of lived uh, an interesting journey. He started out as a sort of typical college atheist with your sort of, you might say, run-of-the-mill, liberal social beliefs on various things. And Over time, I watched him actually become a Christian. So he converted from atheism to Christianity, to Reformed Christianity. And then, within a few months' time, he converted to Eastern Orthodoxy, interestingly, just through reading online of the Orthodox Church, particularly to the Russian Orthodox uh, Church within Eastern Orthodoxy. And then, from there, he became almost militarized against Protestantism and actually began to push and find himself becoming a self-proclaimed fascist, which is about the time that I lost touch with this guy. So he went all the way from being an atheist to being a fascist. Fascism, as you know, is the form of government that is extremely aggressive in its authoritarianism to the degree that it will almost literally do anything to quash any sort of rebellion against it. And so he went from one extreme to the other and it was a whirlwind to say the least to watch this but i think it's a good example again of the way in which we struggle as a culture with this concept of authority we we either struggle with one end of the ditch with Rebelling against all authority, casting all authority off, writing it off, and dismissing it. And then the other end of the ditch where we run into authority and see it as the great savior of all the ills of our society. And so what does the scripture have to say? What does God's word teach us then? And what does this passage here this morning in Ephesians chapter 6 get at as we think about this question of authority? The first thing I think we could say, as you might expect, is that the Scripture simply doesn't allow for either extreme here. It helps us to find a harmonious balance, a beautiful balance. Scripture's authority, or Scripture's perspective on authority, is vast. It's multifaceted. It's complex, but it's beautiful, and it helps us to flourish as human beings. that's the the hope that we have in this in this passage and seeing how authority is used to bring blessing to all parties. And so because of this, because of scripture's perspective on authority, historians, Christian or otherwise, have been able to look back and to see that One of the most important legacies of the Christian faith, one of the most important impacts of Christianity over the past 2,000 years has been the way in which it has completely revolutionized the world's approach to authority, to show that both of these extremes are wrong-headed and will eventually lead to destruction and pain for all involved. And the reason for this, the reason that they say that Christianity has had this impact, can basically be summed up in two points that the bible makes about authority. Two points that we'll see even in our passage this morning. The first point we could say is this. Authority is not necessarily now, well, this is a simple point. Uh, there's not anything too profound here, but this is in direct contradiction to the first view, the first extreme of being anti-authority, which tends to see authority as an obstacle to human flourishing and not as something that can be used to bring about the common good for all people. And so the Bible is not in favor of anarchy or of those who, who see authority and power as an unqualified evil. The Bible doesn't take that position. For one thing, God himself is in authority over mankind, as we see in Genesis. And he even there bestows upon mankind authority, or what he calls dominion. Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves On the earth. And so, this is how the scripture pushes back against the anti authoritarian vision. And furthermore, all throughout the scriptures, we see that God calls certain humans to have varying measures of authority over others. This is a sort of natural part of God's creation. And so in some ways, we could say, yes, last week's passage teaches that husbands have authority over their wives, that parents here have authorities over their children, that leaders have authority over their people of their nation. Priests in the Old Testament have authority over the Israelites. And so on and so forth. But while I think all of this is no doubt true, and maybe it's perked your ears a little bit to consider this, it's not the whole truth, of course. There's still the second point that Christianity makes regarding authority that is really the revolutionary, crucial point. And it's the point that often gets missed in thinking through how authority is to be used, and it's this. Authority is designed by God to be sacrificially stewarded for the good of those under it. Now, I've worded this a little bit oddly, I realize, but in other words, we could say that authority is a tool that God has created in order to bless and to seek the good of those under it. It's something to be stewarded then, something to be used for their good, not used for the sake of the one who is in authority. That is an abuse of authority. That is the evil twisting of authority that the scriptures condemn outright. And so as we've seen over the past couple of weeks in Ephesians 4 and 5, Paul makes a powerful contrast, again, between the pagan Gentiles of this world, who he tells us in chapter 4, verse 19, had given themselves up. Remember those words. Given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and impurity. So he contrasts them with our Lord Jesus Christ, who we're told in chapter 5, verse 2, gave himself up for us through his sacrificial death on the cross. And he even goes on later in chapter 5 to express how husbands ought to follow this example and give themselves up for their wives. This is how authority is to be used. And the grand revolutionary point then is clear. Authority is intended by God for the good, for the blessing of those who exist and who live under it. It's something that then must be used by the one who is in authority to glorify God to, by serving other people for their good. In the Scriptures then, and other, any other use of authority is illegitimate and blatantly evil. And this is why I chose to begin today's service with the passage from John chapter 13, where we have a perfect picture of Christian authority. In the Lord Jesus Christ, who came down and descended all the way to the washing of his disciples' feet. And it's why, once he has done this, John continues the story with these words. He says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, so he had put his outer garments back on, and he resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, which are titles of authority, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given, excuse you, excuse me, I have given you an example so that you should do all as I have done to you. And so... All of this took place, remember, on that last night of Jesus' life, the eve of the crucifixion, when our teacher and our Lord would descend even lower, lower than washing feet. Now he he would go to not only wash feet with water, but to wash our souls with his blood. He would descend not just to the bottom of the table to wash his disciples' feet. Now he would descend to the abyss of death on a cross. And he would wash not just their hands or their feet or their bodies or their heads, but all of their being. Therefore, authority in the Christian view, we could say, is shaped by this picture, by this call to love. That's fundamentally what we could call this. Authority is shaped by love. And it's for this reason that the great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas famously quipped about love with these words. In order to explain what love was, he said this, To love is to will the good of the other. To love is to will the good of the other. That is, it's to passionately seek God's best for them, even to the point, as Jesus shows, of giving our own lives in service of them. That's the Christian vision of authority. And this is how Christianity then radically revolutionized the world. Unlike the pharaohs and the warrior kings and emperors and Caesars before him, all of whom sought in various ways to use their authority for their own good and to acquire godlike status, calling themselves God, Jesus, who was himself God, comes from the heavenlies, descends into our realm, is incarnate and made man, and dies for us on the cross, giving himself up. For us all. And so, thus, we are commanded, Jesus says here, to go and do likewise. He says, I've given you this as an example of what authority is to look like. And it's for this reason that Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, would famously go on to tell the Philippian church these words Let each of you look not only So Paul here starts then with that ethical command. Have this mind amongst yourselves, he said. This is how you are called to live. And then he gives them this example of Jesus. He grounds it in what Jesus has done. And so, if that then is what we might say is the general biblical view of authority, and we've seen now how that view of authority contrasts with and indeed revolutionizes the world's understanding of authority, what might our passage this morning have to say about authority? How does it use these two points about authority and apply them to these relationships of the ancient household? And so. Of course, to tackle this, all we will simply need to do is read it. So Paul starts with these words, children, and here he's assuming that children would be in the gathered worship as this letter was being read aloud. He tells them, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And so interestingly, just as he did in the previous passage where he addresses wives and husbands, he here addresses children first, which is interesting. He mentions them before their parents. And what he tells them is fairly simple. It appears at first. He he simply tells them to obey their parents. But then he qualifies this this command for obedience with the revolutionary words, "...in the Lord." In the Lord. The point here then is subtle, but it's important. They are to obey their parents insofar as their parents' instructions align with the will of God. And so, this of course goes mainly for little children, those who are still in the home of their parents, but in many ways it still applies to uh, adult children as well. We are to obey our parents, especially insofar as it is in, the, in line with God's will. So if our parents, of course, are teaching us to do something evil or calling us to do something evil, we are then allowed to disobey out of reverence for Christ. But for the most part, our parents, if they are good Christian parents, are going to be calling us to live in accordance with God's word. And therefore, we ought to have a general uh, perspective of submission, of reverence for them, of obedience to them. And so we see both the points of authority that we've made here already clear in Paul's instruction. Authority is not necessarily evil, and authority is to be stewarded or to be used so as to bless the one under it. That's what this whole idea of authority of Paul rooting it in this passage of the Old Testament from the fifth commandment, where he says it will live, lo- you will live long in the land. It will go well with you if you obey your parents. He wants them to see that it's for their blessing. It's for the children's blessing to obey their parents. And so he writes honor your father and mother and he puts in parentheses this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the man. so he slips in this little parenthetical comment and what he's trying to show here is that generally speaking when parents follow their parent or when children follow their parents godly counsel it will be a blessing to them so parents are called to bless their children by calling them to live in line and in accordance with the will of god And so children, don't miss this one, right? Do you want to live long? Do you want to have a good, long life? Then obey your parents. That is the simple calling from the Apostle Paul. But of course, this isn't all he says. He then turns the focus of uh, from being on children to now being on the fathers, saying to them, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And while again, all of this is really short and sweet, this little sentence for fathers is full of meaning. It's very pithy in that regard. What Paul envisions for them, and for mothers by extension, is the loving, intentional, and careful building up or spiritual formation of their children. Not just checking the boxes and trying to complete a list of duties to. trying to fulfill what you think is the idea of the the good dad but by spending a lot of time and attention and care raising your children and caring for them and teaching them and forming them and walking with them, abiding with them, forgiving them, all of these things with great care and with great love, trying not to make them into what you want them to be, but trying to walk alongside them to be who God and Christ has called them to be. And so parents, this is your God-given vocation before the Lord. And much more could be said, but Paul goes on, now adapting this uniquely Christian vision of authority, not to the parent and child relationship, but also to the final relationship of the ancient household, which was, of course, between masters and bond servants, or really slaves. And so this is, of course, a weighty subject. It's one that obviously requires a great deal of care, a great deal of nuance as we come to it. And in fact, a little over a year ago, last summer, I had the privilege as we were working our way through the book of Colossians, which in many ways is very similar. It shares a lot of the similar ideas and even passages or instructions as the book of Ephesians. Scholars see them as probably being written about the same time by Paul. Uh, It also has a section of household codes where uh, we had the opportunity to look into uh, this subject of slavery. And I made the point there, I made lots of points, but one of the main points that I made there is that throughout the New Testament, and even here in Ephesians 6, Paul lays down what we might call ticking time bombs of truth that would eventually totally destroy the institution of slavery from within. Interestingly, if we think about these relationships of the ancient household between uh, spouses and between parents and children and slaves and masters. The first two are relationships built in creation. They are a part of the created order of all things. Slavery is not a relationship relationship built into creation. It's not a natural relationship. And therefore, to do away with it is, is no problem at all. In fact, as we would say, it's clearly a good thing to do. And so Paul gives these ticking time bombs of truth, as we can see. Uh, and we see this, for example, even in our passage here this morning, where he not only forbids masters from mistreating their slaves or threatening them harshly, but he also grounds this charge in the truth that both the masters and the slaves are equal before the real master in heaven. That before him they are They are on the same playing field. There is no distinction. Jesus doesn't care then about their earthly status one way or the other. Just because you're the master of a slave, Jesus does not care about that distinction. Jesus looks at you as the same as them. They are are lifted up and you are lowered down. That is the playing field, the level playing field. That Paul insists upon here and we can see this in verse 9 where he turns to the masters and he says masters do the same to them So treat them with respect essentially and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours Is in heaven and there is no partiality or no favoritism with him So the fact that Paul even does this at all subversively upends the entire notion of slavery. Slaves were to obey what Paul calls their earthly masters, yes, of course. But in an earthly sense, they they were still under authority. So there was still a sense in which they needed to respect their authorities, even in the sense that we as Christians are called to respect corrupt, unjust authorities above us. That may mean we disobey them at important points in time, but it nevertheless means that we respect them and pray for them and care for them. So one simple lesson there is if we have a president that we we happen to disagree with very strongly and to think is a corrupt president, we are still called to pray for them, to respect them and to obey them insofar as we are able to in Christ. This is, of course, complex. This is, of course, difficult to think through all the nuances of all of this. But nevertheless, Paul's words did, in fact, work, I think, to cut the legs out from underneath the whole institution of slavery. And while Christians have, at times, sought to abuse his words, to take them and to manipulate them in order to establish and bring back uh, slavery, especially various, I would say, far worse forms of slavery, with chattel slavery as we've seen in the past few hundred years, the great tradition of historic Christianity has time and time again sought to put these uh, abuses to rest, to lay them down, and to fight vigorously in defense of the teaching of the Scriptures. We see this, for example, in the Civil War, where the North gave their own blood to fight off and to kill the institution of slavery. And so why we should celebrate this victory, of course, we should not skip over Paul's instructions. They still have meaning for us here. We might think, well, because slavery is done, Paul's words here in these verses really don't have any application to us today. And I would say that that's not exactly the case. There are still core principles that apply and are meaningful for us today. Though, thank God, slavery is not a thing in our world, we can still listen to these words and make sense of them and adapt them to our own context. And so I do not mean to make light of this passage, but I think we can understand these words as having something to do with the relationship between employers and employees and so employees we are if you are one of those you are called then to humbly serve your employers and to do so sincerely by working not to just please them not to be people pleasers but to praise and please the Lord. And if we are employers then who have an earthly authority over those underneath us, we need to listen to what Paul says in this passage and think about how we have a boss, you might say, who's in heaven, one before whom we are going to be called to give an account for how we treat those under our authority. How are we using our authority? Is it an evil, abusive authority, twisting our authority for our own good, or do we use our authority for the good of others. It's really not for nothing that the most successful businesses in the world, the businesses that people are clamoring to work for, who really want to work for, are the businesses that take care of those who work for them, the businesses that care about the day-to-day needs, the human needs of their employees. They're not just worried about the bottom line. They're not just worried about making a buck at all cost. They're businesses that are deeply concerned with the well-being of their people, who want to give them time off, who want to give them raises insofar as they are able, who want to support them with with benefits and with insurance. These are the kinds of businesses that tend to do well. And this is because the Lord has built this into creation. This is how we are called to live, to use our authority in this way. When we do so, it brings flourishing for the common good of all people. And so as we noted at the outset then, authority is indeed a tricky subject. It's a difficult subject. It's fraught, of course, with baggage and problems and dangers. But this is because it's a crucial part of the way that God has created our world. Good authority is such a blessing and a gift. When we have good authority, we are thankful for it. We are deeply thankful for it. But when we have bad authority— when we have people who use their authority for their own selfish ends and for their own power, we know that this is an evil so horrible it's hard to think of much else that could possibly be worse. That just goes to show the importance of authority. When it's good, it's good. And when it's bad, it's really bad. But this is why Paul's teaching on authority here in Ephesians 5 and 6 is so profoundly important to the whole aim of the letter. A letter aimed at uh, highlighting the kingdom of God and its beauty now as it has come in our midst. By properly using authority for the good of those around us and for the good of those under us. And by respecting those in authority over us. This is how we will greatly contrast and show the beauty of the kingdom of God with its mutuality of submission between all people, while at the same time noting that there is proper and true and good authority and that we are called to live under it as we are called to do. We can see how this brings flourishing. And insofar as it does, it pushes up against the darkness of our world. It offers a serious difference a serious alternative to what is otherwise the case. And so Paul is doing that here. He's showing us that Christ's authority over us is something that should change and affect how we think of authority ourselves. We should reflect more and more on the fact that Christ used His authority to be a blessing in service of others. Amen? Let's pray. Our God, we... Are thankful that you are not merely a transcendent God, that you are not merely remote and high and far off, but that you are a God who even in your holiness have come and that you have gotten your hands dirty by walking among us mere mortals, by moving into the neighborhood, so to speak, and by weeping with us, by cleansing us, by talking with us, by sharing dignity with us, by recognizing us in all of our brokenness and sin and dying for us on the cross. Lord, may we look to this example that You have set for us and may we use our authority where we have it to bless and to love and cherish those under us, that we may serve them and seek their good in all things and point them to you. We pray this in Christ's name, who lives and reigns with you, Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.